Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice Corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Carrie Bovey. Born in northern New Mexico, Carrie developed a love of reading, writing, and history early in life. Fascinated by empowered women in history, other unconventional characters, and real-life historical events, she makes use of this as the backbone for her fiction. She is the author of six novels, including the Southwest mystery Bones of the Redeemed, two novels in her Grace Michelle series set in 1920s Hollywood, and three novels in her current mystery series featuring Annie Oakley, the first of which, among other accolades, won the 2019 Hillerman Award for Southwestern Fiction. Hello, friend, and welcome to the Six Gun Justice podcast. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good. Carrie, it's great to have you on the show. I was really intrigued to find your series on Annie Oakley as I was preparing to do a Six-Gun Justice speed listen on just that young lady. She's such a fascinating character. When I saw you had done three books featuring Annie Oakley, I was delighted to be able to get in touch with you. That's awesome. Tell me how you came to find Annie Oakley as a character strong enough to want to write a mystery series around. My late father and I shared a love of history, and he was very supportive of me writing books. And he saw a PBS American Experience special on Annie Oakley that was filmed in 2011 or something like that. And he said, I think you should watch this show. It's really interesting about Annie Oakley. I wasn't that interested, but I thought I would give it a shot. And I was really quite blown away by her after I had seen this. And he said, why don't you do some kind of a biography? And I said, I don't really want to write nonfiction. I want to write fiction and I want to write mystery. And I thought, wait a minute, why can't Annie Oakley be an amateur detective? I had read some books by an author named Stephanie Barron, and she uses Jane Austen as an amateur sleuth. And I was really fascinated by that. So I thought, I'll see if I can make Annie Oakley an amateur detective. And it just started from there. And I've just had so much fun with it. I always check and see if there's an American Experience documentary on a subject I'm doing research on just to get the basics. They're so good. They do a good job. Like you, when I started to investigate Annie Oakley, there are so many things about her that go beyond just being a good markswoman. I think Annie Oakley, TV shows and the play <laughs> Annie Get Your Gun and all that really did not do the woman justice at all. They're cute, they're fun, but she had so much more depth than that. She had been through quite a bit as a child and her life was not easy. And then here she becomes one of the most famous women in the world of her time. She definitely had a very good sense of self and she wasn't swayed by you know, what she should do to get famous. That's one of the things I find most empowering about her. She was a woman who excelled and became famous and mapped her own way by being herself. And she wasn't going to change that for anyone. She was very concerned about her image, about her reputation. So she took on this persona of kind of almost a girlish figure. She was bubbly and tiny, and she had this charm about her and everything. So it wasn't anything like overtly sexual. She just appealed to everyone. And I think that's what was part of her success. She was an attractive woman. She was comely, more so than many women of the West. She realized it was part of her charm, and she played to her strengths. 
she also made use of this gift that she had for sharpshooting. This was an innate gift she turned into a lifelong career. It was a talent. It was something she discovered at a really young age. That was what she did well. That's how she identified. She used a shotgun more than a rifle or a pistol, but she was a well-rounded shooter. It's interesting that you say that when she was young, she discovered this knack or this talent. We'll talk a little bit about the three books in the series, but I want to talk first about the prequel you wrote, Shoot Like a Girl, because in that novella, you really do any justice by showing where she came from, because it's really quite horrifying. Yes, it is horrifying. That came about after I wrote Girl with a Gun. And that little prequel novella was actually within the body of Girl with a Gun. And my editor said, that's too much story. So I removed that part and I let it sit for a while. And then after I had published Girl with a Gun, I thought, I'm going to use that. I'm going to make it a prequel novella because I wanted people to understand where Annie came from and some of the hardships she endured. It is fictionalized, but it is based on something horrifying that happened to her when she was a young girl. She was farmed out to a family who ended up abusing her. It was a tough time for her. It was a tough year for her. She was like 11 or 12, and she ended up escaping and going back home. So I thought this would be a really great way to introduce people to why Annie, in my books, was compelled to fight for truth and justice. In Shoot Like a Girl, she befriends this couple's horse named Buck. Buck is her lifeline. He's the only thing that's keeping her going. And they escape together. I'm a horsewoman myself. And I wanted Annie to have a special relationship with a horse. And so he's throughout the whole series. It wasn't about saving herself in Shoot Like a Girl. It was actually about saving Buck. And that's what sort of prompted her into this character who would fight for truth and justice and the underdog. And I think it really adds an understanding to the older Annie Oakley that you write about in the novels. Because without that background, she's just another amateur sleuth. But with that background, she becomes a character who we really have an understanding and a feeling for. She was basically a slave to these people, possibly abused in many different ways. So she comes from this, and she has such a strength of character that she's not going to let anything hold her back. She's never going to be controlled like that again. That's a fascinating start to her career where she turns a really bad negative into a positive for the future. In doing the research, I discovered she was a very positive, forward-looking person. And you're right. She wasn't going to let things get her down. She was going to persevere no matter what. With Girl with a Gun, there are some small liberties that are taken, as in any mystery of this sort, in order to make either time collapse or make the plot move along. How did you go about trading off some of the facts with some fictional and not get too far away from the truth? One of the biggest leaps I took was I shortened the timeline. There's lots of different theories on when she met Frank Butler, how old she was, when she married him. And so for the sake of my story, I wanted her to meet him early at 15. There are historical records that say yes. that. I also wanted her to join the show at 15. She was actually about 26 when she joined the Wild West show, if memory serves. But I thought bringing that romantic element in and creating tension between Annie and Frank was important because in my story, it bonds them, this adversity that they go through. 
I pitch them as rivals to one another. They bring out the best in each other. And in Girl with a Gun, Frank Butler is performing in the Wild West show, which he never really did. In my book, Buffalo Bill and the manager, Darrence LaFleur, use that to their advantage to gin up enthusiasm from the crowd. Because in reality, they had been on the vaudeville circuit together for quite a while. They'd originally been turned down by Buffalo Bill because he already had a sharpshooter. And fate intervened, and Buffalo Bill's sharpshooter's guns were lost, and he never recovered. That gave the opening to Annie Oakley. So it is a time collapse to put them directly in the show, but it's still true to the characters themselves, especially Butler. I find him fascinating of a man of his day who willingly realizes Annie's a star and does not get upset about this. He is her manager, more or less, now. He's not necessarily a competitive shooter anymore. That says a lot about their relationship and, quite frankly, his love for her. Yeah, I agree. He was almost a talent scout in a way in that he saw this talent and it didn't matter if she was male or female or young or old. He saw the talent and I think that's incredible. He wasn't dissuaded by his own biases or biases that men had at that time. So he was an extraordinary person and they had an extraordinary relationship. That went on for over 50 years, I believe, didn't it? And they died three weeks apart. Yeah, they died very close. I think it was 13 days or something like that. She died when she was in her early 60s. He was 12 or 13 years older than she was, and then he passed away. Yeah, they had a lifelong love affair. So here's a guy who gets outshot by a 15-year-old girl. He is her senior by a decade or more. Many men in his position would have gotten very upset and miffed and complained and carried on. He marries her. (laughs) He fell in love with her. From some accounts that I've read, it was almost instant. It was like, who is this young woman? It was a matter of the right time at the right place, because at that point in his career, Butler was bored beating people in shooting exhibitions. And so when Annie Oakley beats him, it's, whoa, life is all of a sudden alive again for him. That whole sequence fascinates me. Yeah, me too. With the three books in the series, you do definitely take specific events that Annie Oakley participated in, for instance, the Queen's Jubilee in London and then the World's Fair in Chicago. Where was your decision-making in that process? For Peccadillo at the Palace, which is the one where they go to England, of course, in my research, I researched Annie's whole life and knew that she had gone to these places. But when I delved more into their trip to England, I was fascinated because I love English history. And I majored in English literature and been to England many times. And I'm just fascinated by all of that. And so it was really exciting for me to combine my love of American history with my love of English history. And oh my gosh, Annie Oakley was at the center of it. And it was just so exciting for me to write that. And of course, I'm thinking, why wouldn't there be an attempt on the queen if Annie Oakley's going over there? (laughs) She's going to have to solve this crime, this murder of the queen's assistant, and she's going to have to prevent an assassination attempt on Queen Victoria, which there were several. So I thought it played into that quite well. It really does. It's a very plausible concept at the time. As you said, there were attempts on Queen Victoria's life. And to do it during the Jubilee, it's kind of like a Day of the Jackal setup in some ways. You have taken jumps in time from your first book, Girl with a Gun, to Peccadillo at the Palace and then Folly at the Fair. 
As a writer, are you feeling you are forced to continue to later events in her life, or do you feel you can go back and write other books that go back in time a little bit? I would like to start a different series using Annie Oakley in between these time periods with Emma Wilson, the reporter in the books, because Emma was one of these characters who a lot of writers talk about this, and I never quite believed it until it happened to me, but she literally walked onto the page. And I was so fascinated with her. And I thought, wow, what a great sidekick. And she's everything that Annie isn't. She's from a very privileged background. She's sophisticated. She's worldly. She's all of these things that I think together they make a great sleuthing team. So I'd like to do a series based on Annie and Emma at some point, because I think it would be a whole lot of fun. I don't know about you, but I'm a plotter. I have to know the beginning, the middle, the end, what the crime is, how it's solved. So sometimes if you try to force too much, if I try to stick too closely to that outline, I sometimes get in trouble. I have to be open to my subconscious, to my imagination. I have to sometimes step away and go do something that's a little bit less cerebral, maybe something physical, go out, go on a walk, ride one of my horses, do something like that to where I can let that subconscious work. And then when I come back, that's usually when I have some kind of a breakthrough. It's an interesting relationship that you have with your own psyche. (laughs) It's like you have to do a lot of the talking and then you do a lot of the listening. You live in New Mexico and your first book, Bones of the Redeemed, takes place in New Mexico. What was it about the Southwest that turned you on to write this first novel? The history of the Southwest, New Mexico in particular, is so fascinating because it's really a combination of cultures and how the cultures work together and a lot of religious culture here. Santa Fe, I think it's the oldest city in the U.S. It's just ancient. Bones of the Redeemed is very loosely inspired by a group of men called penitentes who have been around for a long time. They are a sect of Catholic men who punish themselves to save others. Penitentes are all over the world, and they're all over the Southwest. And I was really fascinated by that part of New Mexico history. So that was the inspiration. You are, by definition, a mystery writer. And yet so much of what you write as mysteries is involved in the West. Bones of the Redeemed is in the Southwest. The Annie Oakley tales have a Western flavor to them. And your blog has many characters from the West, such as Eleanor Dumont, Madame Mustache. And I find that fascinating. How do you combine those two? I love mystery novels. The novels that I choose to read the most are mystery. They're usually historical. Like I said, I love English history. And so a lot of the shows I watch and the books I read takes place in England. But I'm also very fascinated with the West. The West is a very romanticized era. It was wild and free and untamed and the sky was the limit. And so I think that's one of the things that was so appealing to me and particularly the women who were in the West because it was a very harsh existence. You had to be either extremely savvy as a woman if you wanted to be in business or you worked a farm. There were not many choices for women. 
And for women like Madame Moustache, they made the most of it. They took what they knew would make them money and they built these empires. That's really fascinating too, because the West was a place where you could try anything. And they learned how to stand up for themselves. Annie Oakley in particular, she is so incensed when William Randolph Hearst newspapers publish an article about her being destitute and being arrested. It was clearly not her. She wasn't even in the area. And it turns out that it was another person impersonating Annie Oakley. And she is unafraid to take on not only William Randolph Hearst's empire, but all the newspapers across the country. And she is not going to back down. I think that's amazing. Very gutsy. She worked a long time, six to eight years or something like that, getting those stories retracted. She filed 55 lawsuits, if I'm correct, and she won 54 of them, including a $27,000 judgment against William Randolph Hearst. Correct. She wasn't going to wither on the vine. This comes back to her wanting to protect her reputation, her image, her goodness, She was a good person. She worked at being a good person. She was a benefactress of sorts. She taught thousands of women to shoot. She appealed to the army to train soldiers. She had a very strong sense of self. That was amazing for a woman in her time period because a lot of women would have been shut down and shut out and told to just sit down and look pretty and do your work. And she wasn't going to have it. Another thing that gave her a lot of strength was that Quaker background in the sense that society-wise, whether you're a man or a woman, nobody is better than anyone else. I'm sure that there were male and female roles within Quaker households because that was just at times. But this feeling of I'm not going to be diminished just because you think I should be. I think that's something that really gave her a lot of strength that she was not going to be put in a corner. And this plays into something else that fascinates me about her that maybe goes back to her Quaker background again. Here's Annie Oakley, and she does all of this basically philanthropic work. She teaches hundreds of women to shoot. She is an advocate for equal pay, for equal work, and many of the other things that we're still dealing with today. And yet she wouldn't join the suffragette movement. Perhaps it might have been that the suffragette movement could get very offensive at times. And I think she didn't want to be perceived in that way. This comes back to she wanted to be her own woman. That was her strength. I think maybe you're right. Maybe she just wanted to be a feminist in her own way. With three books in the Annie Oakley series now, are you moving on to other writing projects? Right now, I'm moving on to other writing projects. I do have the Annie and Emma books in the back of my mind. I have just published the second book in the Grace Michelle Mysteries, and I'm getting ready to write the third book in that series, just because I feel like a series needs to have three or more books in it. I also have a cozy historical paranormal series I'd like to pursue that will take place in a mining town in Southern Colorado with a strong female protagonist whose name's Arabella Price. She inherits this hotel in this mining town and she solves crimes. So I have more ideas than time. Don't we all? I know. I have a couple of more ideas for two other Annie Oakley books, but I don't know when I will get to them. One last note before we finish up here. Grace Michelle and Arabella Price, how important are names to you? 
they're really important. And I spend a lot of time trying to come up with names for my characters. They have to go with the personality. Grace Michelle is a costume designer in the 1920s. She's rather shy. She's rather subdued, but she's smart and she's crafty. So Grace, I thought was a really interesting name. She's in the hardened world of show business. In the first book, she's in Broadway. In the second book, she's in the silent films. And to bring in the word grace in the wings, grace in Hollywood, I try to work it out so that it has something to do with their personality and sort of the theme of the books. And Arabella Price, her name is spelled P-R-Y-C-E. And the series of the books are going to be, for instance, The Price of Conceit the price of folly, things like that. She's a very upper crust lady. And so I thought Arabella was a good name for her. I like it. That's cool. Carrie, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to be with me here on the Six Gun Justice podcast. Good luck with all of your works. And I really want to advise people to give your Annie Oakley books a try because I found them fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your eye on the target. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.